Hello and welcome to the Film Ireland podcast. I'm Gemma Cray and ahead of the release of his fantastic film Jihad Jane, we're here joined by award-winning documentary director Kieran Cassidy. So thank you so much for chatting with us. Thanks very much for having me. I love to get people's origin stories. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into the industry? Yeah, it was kind of very sidesteps, 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 sidestep, sidestep. And oh, I'm a filmmaker now. Like it, it definitely wasn't like I wasn't like going up on the bus from Cavan to Dublin thinking, oh, I'm going to become a filmmaker. It really, it wouldn't, it would have been beyond what I was kind of aspiring at the time. Like it, I, I kind of got into journalism first. So I, my primary degree was economics. I was in college, but when I was in college, I was doing kind of student journalism. So I was kind of interested in journalism. I did magazines. I liked doing it. Wasn't, you know, an amazing writer or anything like that, but I liked kind of layout design, stuff like that. And then after I left college, I went back and I did a master's in journalism. Uh, and I kind of started getting into doing audio docs well before podcasting and stuff like that. But I started kind of getting in, like, I think that was what I did for my thesis. But I started like kind of getting fascinated by that, telling stories kind of longer term. So that was kind of another step. And then when I left that with the audio background, I did a TV series for Teja Kahar, um, which we got off the ground on the very start of BAI Sound of Visions. And then I was kind of working as an editor on a soccer uh, show. And it was just like I, when I was doing working on a soccer show, I started working with cameras. So it's brilliant. So you're getting all the technical know-how yeah. as well as you're going along. Because journalism to filmmaker is a leap. But if you're getting that incremental knowledge, it's so important. And it's all storytelling as well in different it, ex- forms Exactly, yeah. Like, so like, I, like, I, like the first time... I would have been working on those shows, like be it like the teach car, and this was, I was just the first time I was working with cameras, and I didn't have, a, you know, so I was kind of learning. And then on the other hand, I, then I started working with Doc and One on Radio One, or T Radio One, and then I started making a lot of radio docs. And so then what I was doing was I was processing a lot of stories. So I think one of the advantages of that uh, was that I could be doing up to maybe 10 docs a year. So like if you're doing a film, you're doing one film a year, by the end of the year, you're jaded with it. You've, you know, you've known the story inside out, you're going around, it takes ages to get loads of stuff. Well, then I would be nearly on six week cycles where I would be like one week finding myself, you know, in England trying to find out, uh, you know, the, you know, the origin story of a skeleton that was found in a woods there. And the next week I would be back doing a documentary about a girl who committed suicide after she was bullied and left behind a diary and her parents are reading that diary. So you're moving from different stories to different stories and you were getting kind of an insight like in... Um, how to approach those and like when you're talking about like all the technical things like you were doing the research then you were going off and recording them and then you were coming back and then you were editing them so you're kind of seeing every stage of it but obviously like it wasn't so you're getting a kind of an idea of each area um, but very kind of intensive so it was a kind of a good background uh, and then I started doing short films for the film board so the first one I did was Collaboration Horizontal that was about the head shaving of uh, French women in a town the day of liberation um, the German soldiers had gone and these are women who had slept with French uh, with German soldiers and it was kind of based on a Robert Kappa photo now that doc was kind of hit and miss but it was my very first one and I learned a lot on it so I then t- think with the second one that we did was Bergman and that was something like I was working with you know like it's just like what I like when you know when you're doing anything the first time like you have to go through it it's like from baking a cake to building a house to skating on ice or whatever and I think you just kind of have to experience it for that first time so even with a short which is so much like you know less complex than doing an actual feature like doing the short 
like the the feeling I had at the end of that was a kind of like I applied everything that had gone wrong in the first one and it was nothing to do with the team it was just like what you had learned to the second one and we were able to then be able to kind of put a stronger uh, make, make a stronger I think film from it uh, and then like Bergman a lot of stuff went when, when we were making that kind of went right with it and then it, like it did have a kind of uh, a kind of really unique life of its own for about a year you're also working on a uh, developing a feature mm. a drama feature at yeah, the yeah. moment as well so th- it's very different sort of backgrounds that you're doing how do you it's, I know it's all storytelling but how do yeah. you apply the the skills that you've learned that yeah it's kind of like I did the the screenplay that I did was with Blinder and it was called Eraser and it was Kieran J. Walsh directing it and Katie Holly was the producer with Yvonne Donoghue um, but like the storytelling is kind of the same it's kind of like it's kind of I think like like what I'm learning now is that like you're approaching different stories and you see different strengths in them. So like like now like it's like like they say with the racer like what I found really fascinating about that or where it was I was reading like a non-fiction book uh, and it was about the idea that these guys take um, EPO and it uh, like it's so heavy on their blood like it causes such uh, what's like, EPO it's a kind of um, it's a drug that they take to make them go faster but it's a kind of it's for I think like liver transplants or something like that but like it's it's a very heavy drug for people to be taken but all the cyclists were taking it because it caused miracle results so all of their performances were going up but these guys were treating themselves with this drug that they shouldn't have been taking and one of the kind of consequences was that their blood became heavy and it started getting heavy and heavier when they're resting. So when they're asleep at night. So it was great when you're cycling. But when you're resting or doing it, and it would come heavy and heavier. So they would have their hearts set up to monitors. And when, it went, when their heart rate went under, like say, like 25 beats, they would wake up. And they would have to get out of their bed and cycle. Wow. Uh, yeah, to, to like get their heart going again. And this was happening in hotels where cycle teams were like staying in the middle of the night. And it became these kind of like stories that were going around in that world. So... Like, it's just kind of like, it's the same thing about what excites you about a documentary or what excites me. It was just like an image. Like, it was an image of, like, people getting up in the middle of the night and then, um, like, quite haunting, trying to revive their heart. And then why are they doing, putting so much pressure on it? And then the question that I felt with this story and the angle that we were taking is, what if you weren't even very good at cycling? Because everybody's heard about Lance Armstrong and all that. But imagine doing all of that and you may be at the back of the peloton and like why are you continuing on with that and there was a kind of a pathos and there was a kind of a, a like a burning ambition behind it so I think it's just like it's the same with what kind of attracts you to a documentary or what like attracts you like there's different yeah like an image might attract you and then I think there's different strengths so I think some stories that you may read you can never make a documentary about or you may never be able to uh, really put out but it may actually be better to put down on, on a screenplay and be able to apply what you've kind of learned uh, into that and I think like actually when I'm t- talking about the screenplay like, like we did a lot of writing for the like the radio docs because you would have been putting script and stuff like that so it didn't feel like a, like a, like I felt like I was kind of putting myself in POVs of different people all the time anyway uh, and then like the other thing that I started like learning now about is like sometimes you're kind of realizing that like a certain story might be very good for a podcast series but it may not work for a film and then something might be very good for film, but wouldn't work for podcasting. So you're just realizing that different stories go in different areas, and that's where we're kind of... And that's very interesting. So do you mean something that's very, very visual works well as a film, but something that's a bit more character-driven might work better for TV? What, what, what did you... I think, um, I think, like, let's say, like, I think for film, like, obviously, I think, like, let's say a documentary at this moment in time, I think a lot of it is 
um, I think like what's happening now. So like something that's in the present tense makes brilliant visual filmmaking at the moment. Well, I think something that happened in the past, it may be better relayed with voices and podcasting. But then it's also what type of story that you might be looking at. And I think, um, like let's say with a kind of podcast series, something... Then some things thematically that happened like in the 1950s ring very true now. And I think that's very interesting. Like I think there's a lot to be said about um, the horizontal... It's in French. What's the name? Oh, collaboration, horizontal. Yeah, yeah. Uh, collaboration. Yeah. yeah. Car- uh, sorry, I'm so. Bad. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're. yeah, but that's something like that is like it. It speaks a lot to where we are now. The the like in these certain kind of times when right wing politics mm. is so prevalent. There's there is something about the ideology there about women being shamed and punished yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and punished that is very zeitgeisty as yeah, well yeah, yeah. with certain things that are in the news. Yeah. Well, I think that's kind of what, like I was kind of interesting in that short film was that it was like why were these women the first people like like literally the germans had gone out the door so why was it the women and what was it about them uh having relationships with the soldiers that really annoyed you and whatnot and i think that's what we were kind of looking at and like we try not to be judgmental because i think the thing about it is as well like i think the, the thing we felt and when you're going into town and people are very honest with their time it's just, it's just a real complex pressured at um period like it's obviously it's occupation and people are losing their minds and people are dying and uh there's people being dragged out of their houses and um, sent to camps for listening to the bbc so it's kind of like you can't have like some guy from Cavan arriving 45 years later going um you know thing so you're just trying to get a kind of insight about what was really happening and who these people were and who were the people in the picture and um yeah, but it, and and the themes as well that you pick are also very different themes. Mm. Do you find what interests you, what you're drawn to, will change? Is it again the medium that you're working in specifically? What kind of draws you to stories? I think um, I think like, like especially like let's say with a, f- a film like like Jihad Jane or anything like like if you're doing a screenplay, like you have to be personally driven to it. It has to be something that you're kind of connected to because you're just going to spend so long with it. And like, it's not like, I think like the thing about it is, is that it's like anybody who's kind of been in an edit or anybody who's kind of been like just trying to, you know, like just follow through with it from the pitching to, to thing. You, you got to just be like personally very connected and feel kind of strongly about why you want to tell the story or that there's something personally that you're kind of interested in. It has to flick that little switch in you. Because I think, like, I found it before, like, when I started off and I was doing kind of docs or something like that. If somebody gave me a story, um, I always kind of called it, like, oh, you see the light at the end of the tunnel. So if you're on a dock, you kind of have an idea of the arc and the storyline of the place you're going. But if you don't have that and then you're trying to tell a story, it's just, uh, you'd struggle. And I think the thing about it is, like, it's very rare that you'd be given something that's not yours and then you'll be able to kind of figure out where you want to go with it. Like, I think it's kind of in these kind of projects like especially when you're going to be investing so much of your own time i think you just have to kind of have like a huge kind of interest and in whatever that is like what what kind of interests you about it and definitely so we'll we'll start talking about jihad j now because it's again a very interesting film so you... these people came into my home through the computer and invaded my domain and stole my daughter from me. Colleen LaRose had come to the attention of the FBI because she was on social media talking about wanting to rectify what she perceived as wrongs against Muslims. 
basically just seemed like a normal country girl. One day I walked in the kitchen and I heard Arabic playing. The remarkable thing to me was this was just all open. There was no attempt to hide. There was a lot of talk about killing this cartoonist. I was informed by the police that this is very, very, very dangerous. I'm committed to jihad. And um, she was gone. First of all, how did you hear about it? What was the, the bit of information that really drew you to that? Yeah, I think I, I definitely remember that I think like, the first I heard about it was the day of the arrests. And they were just so big. And I think it was like six or seven people arrested down in Waterford. But it was the lead story in so many kind of like around the world. Uh, but so many American outlets and then here as well. And after that, then it kind of went quiet. So I, like, at the time I was working in Docking One, so I'd done a, I decided to do a podcast on it. And it just took like on and off a couple of years because people kept on going into court and getting kicked out of court and all of that. But in the background, I started kind of just investigating more and more about what had actually happened. Uh, and just getting kind of like, I think from that, just getting an idea that not that everything wasn't what it seemed, because everything was what it seemed. It just seemed explosive and it seemed strange and it seemed sensational and it seemed like abnormal and like, that is all that happened, you know, like it was a very kind of unique case. But also, I think you kind of got close to the idea that there was something. Um, I think I was kind of getting closer and closer to the idea of what exactly happened in Waterford when the people came over. Because you had like, the more we, when the people got prosecuted, so Colleen and Jamie went to jail, and Ali Sharaf Damash was facing his sentence, there was indictments posted. And all the indictments like kind of outlined what they were doing, bef you know, before they went to Waterford. And it was outlining like all the stuff that we all know, that we all knew that they were planning to kill a Swedish cartoonist, that they were going to set up a terror camp, that they were, you know, all of these kind of things. And they were communicating about it and, you know, like admissions that if we're terrorists and so be that and, you know, all of this stuff. So it was all very impl um, incriminating. The only thing that was kind of mad about it, half the stuff was like, like it wasn't even on some hidden telegram channel or something like that it was wide open on a website on pages she was posting loads of stuff like you know on her own twitter page and on her own facebook page and whatnot um but it was really just about finding out what actually happened when they met up and then the kind of deeper questions and implications of the case which were like who the personalities were involved because like i think i was kind of i wanted to know more about colleen and i wanted to know more about jamie and i wanted to know more about muhammad Hassan Khalid, like all these people who kind of got wrapped up together, who had no, had never met each other, but like their names are always going to be forever linked to each other and this kind of bizarre um, sequence of like events that kind of led to them all ended up in jail. And the maddest thing was just really quick. Like I think they were, they were online, you know, and within a couple of weeks they were all, you know, so it was very quick, the kind of radicalization online that occurred between all of them. So it was all of those kind of factors. Um, and I suppose, like, I spoke, the other thing to kind of say about it when you're asking me, like, I'll walk up me into it. Like, now, turning back, it's like 2020, but this case is 2010, so it's, it's, it's an actually, actually 10 years old. And the thing about this story was, at the time, it was like the, like, broadband speeds were beginning to increase all around the world. People were connecting. And I think this story wouldn't have happened in the 1950s and it wouldn't have happened in the 1970s. It couldn't have happened because there was no way these people like, would have been able to kind of communicate with each other. This was a kind of a very 2010 story. It was like they had a platform called YouTube where everybody was posting jihadi videos. You could go in and t communicate and message each other on these, uh, on the site. So they were able to... Um, so it was very... My point about why I'm bringing up the age, it was very fresh and new at that time. Like it was like we didn't really know all the beneath the surface 
all the stuff that was happening on the web that I think we're all very accustomed to now, like be it like white nationalism, um, like, you know, conspiracy theories abounding, you know, like the kind of troll culture. Like, I think like most people now, like, you know, can talk about the miracles of the internet, but I think everybody's kind of well aware of the deep, dark undercurrent that exists there. But I think like for 2010, for these people to kind of turn up in Waterford with this kind of madcap scheme, I think it was just a kind of first insight of like some of the kind of stuff that was kind of happening beneath the surface that was going to kind of bubble over uh, over the rest of the next following decade, you know? And what struck me as well about the characters that you followed or the, the people that you followed, that they were vulnerable people like that these two women were in search of something and they found this this I don't know like this path online and I think you did a really good job of of exploring that within them was there more that you found like I know as a documentary maker it can be hard to get everything on the screen but like there was there was just so much to let up to why these were the women that were in that situation their disadvantaged areas they both struggled a lot when they were younger they had to deal with a lot and then they were presented with this yeah. alternative worldview um and again you you kind of get i think uh, even as an irish person in some abstract way you know these what it makes sense what they followed mm-hmm. like people are like radicalization if you look down on it like i mean these are you're you're following the ideology of people that are so oppressed mm. and it but it's just that next step and then that next step and then that's the next step that i think people faced with that maybe that of healthier backgrounds don't follow down mm. but i was what was it do you feel like in their backgrounds that made them targets for that yeah like i think like i i chatted to jesse morton and he he he's at the start of the film we didn't include him and we didn't there was guys who were online vigilantes and they kind of were following Colleen and we cut them from the film, we cut Jesse, but he, he ran the radical website uh, Revolution Muslim at the time that Colleen, a lot of them were getting their videos from. And um, like, I think like the point that he made to me is that there's no, like, there's no like straight answer about why somebody does this. Like the, one of the richest men in the world became one of the world's biggest terrorists in Osama bin Laden. And then you've got people coming from a very poor background. And, but, I think like the one thing when I was trying to examine the story and like look through the various factors that happened, I think um, I think let's say I, I, I would have interviewed Mohammed, I would have interviewed Colleen, I would have Jamie, and isolation was definitely one of them, um, and then spending huge times on the internet. Like they were two things that I was watching, and then three things like hurting, especially with Colleen and and. Uh, Mohammed Hassan Khalid were like and remember if anybody's listening to this and they don't know Mohammed Hassan Khalid is like 15 at this time at, at this age and he's got Asperger's so that's the other kind of co-defendant um, but like he was saying that he spent eight hours a day watching videos in his house and when I talked to Colleen like you could sense that it was really the videos and the videos that were being marketed at that time really had a, a reaction and a kind of like these kind of propaganda videos so I think there was a kind of a vulnerability um, there was an isolation. There was a kind of um, internet. I think there was a personality thing. Like I think Colleen, um, I think like like I think for her, um, she, she like like she was very isolated. But when I asked her um, when she was in prison, it was kind of one of those moments where you thought like, okay, I kind of half understand maybe what's going on here. Was I asked her all oh, like she was given this mission. So somebody online had told her to kill Lars Vilks. 
And um, I was like, why were you doing it? Like, why did you say you'd do it? And she said, I was saying, oh, I felt important. And then we asked her, oh, like, when, when, can you name another time in your life you felt important? And she couldn't. And I think, like, this was the sense that, in that isolation in her house, I think she was getting a sense of importance uh, uh, from this, you know? Um, and I think with, um, like, I think with Jamie, like, she never really was part of any plot, uh, per se, like, in the sense of, like, trying to kill... Um, um, Vilks, like she didn't kind of say, oh, like let's, you know, she wasn't, she was uh, convicted of like aiding terrorism, but the thing was like, I think again, she was very isolated, spending a lot of time online, and it was, it was part of it, like I think the attraction was like relationships and uh, getting married and stuff like that would have been an attraction. I think like, like I think what happens is when you, like I think when they all went to jail, um, like all that we were really left about what had happened with the plot was like uh, was these indictments which detailed what they're communicating but there was a lot of other stuff happening and that's possibly like that's what really the documentary was about it's not just exactly a detail in an exploration of crimes but actually what was going on in people's heads and what their desires and what their wants at that time so obviously Jamie just got married the day that she arrived in Waterford and I think there was a kind of a plan for her to have another child and whatnot. Um, and so maybe like and her. She seemed particularly vulnerable watching yeah. the documentary and my heart went out with her because it's Colleen you got, you know, she's, she seemed very, she seemed to have a lot of agency. It was just seemed very, very misdirected. Yeah, yeah. But Jamie, I, that was my sense of it. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if you're, you were a lot more in. Yeah, no, that. I think yeah. like, I think like, like I felt that, like I say, Colleen um, was more proactive in everything that had happened. Like she had decided to go to Ireland. She decided to leave. She was, she had a lot more agency. Like the question with Jamie, Paul and Ramirez and what always struck me was, she was in that apartment. She was there from like September till like March until the police came and she only left it on four occasions. And like when we asked her, like in, it's in the film, oh, like why didn't you leave? Um, were you banned? Like did Ali Sharaf Damash stop you from leaving the house? She said no, but he just didn't take me anywhere. And it was that kind of strange um, contradiction that like she, she was kind of like, not that she was imprisoned there, but she also couldn't leave. And like she wouldn't leave her on her own volition, and I think that in itself was um, I, I found um, very um, troubling, and, and and like it kind of worried me. So I think like with Colleen, like I think they were very like I think that's why we wanted to tell both sides of this story, and we didn't want it to be like the Colleen show, or we didn't want it to be the Jamie show. But I think with Colleen, I think she kind of actively pursued stuff, and then it fell apart, and she went home, and like. She's, you know, usually an extrovert character who's like very personable and gets on well with everybody. But Jamie, um, from like what I read and from the kind of encounters, I think just was, yeah, like as you're saying, was more vulnerable and also um, didn't have as much agency in like what, what occurred. And is it hard to, like, first of all, get access to everybody? Mm. Like, you've great access here. You have, like, uh, these kind of personal interviews with these women, with mm. the family, with the, the people that knew them. How, A, how is it difficult as a documentary maker to get honest information and in those points? Did you yeah. have to keep going back? Or what was your, like, what's your tricks as well? Yeah, uh, I don't know. Like, I think, like, with us, like, the, the story kind of unravels. Like, it's not, it's just, like it's kind of, um, it's just quite slow, like when, in a case like this. So like for a number of people, like like they're off the grid in the sense that you don't know where they're living, you don't know where they exist, 
or like as in these cases they're in prison and whatnot so like like with some cases like we've only got like a very short window to interview people so you really didn't know that much you know concerning it and we knew the case and whatnot while in other uh, uh, situations we would have spent you know days upon days with people like kind of wandering around and hanging around or like as in Colleen's case traveling across the country so that was one of the strange things with the film like it, there's so many characters and you need to kind of see these different characters to to explain what was going on so like even somebody like Lars Vilks um, like every time we'd interview him like Swedish security police would have to meet us in an undisclosed location and frisk us and check us and all of this kind of stuff and then we'd be like all our equipment would be taken off and taken so it wasn't like we were kind of you know following him around uh, in his house it's, you know he like, himself is a very interesting character yeah. like and really contributes to yeah, it yeah like I think like he well like I think he, like the, the point about it is like it's kind of like everything in this story like if they if you if you say oh they were planning to murder a Swedish cartoonist. The audience's first question is, who's the Swedish cartoonist? And what did he do? So you kind of have to tell a bit of his story as well. And I'm not going to lie, it makes sense. <laughs> like, he really, he really, like, digs the sword. And I'm, I'm yeah. completely all for freedom of, of speech, yeah. definitely. But but you, I think what's very good is you present it from all sides. And you yeah. can totally see why his work really irritated people as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's, an, he's a kind of very interesting character. Yeah, like, I think the thing that we felt was that there was kind of a chain of events and they were all kind of interlinked and uh, people like who ran like let's say Jesse who ran Revolution Muslim and talked about like the fact that like let's say somebody like a southern preacher would burn the Koran uh, you know in some publicity you know uh, you know very kind of aggressive anti-Islam uh, publicity uh, attempt and then they would just post on their website and then people would go mad and then somebody would like put out a fat while on him and then obviously then somebody like maybe at Fox News or something like that then would put that up on their website so it was just kind of tit for tat and it was and kind self-perpetuating of self-perpetuating yeah, yeah, nonsense yeah yeah and it was a circle of kind of extremism and I think like I think it was kind of like I think there was a couple of points in this where like the story could have ended but it kind of went on and on and like Vilks when he after he got like renewed publicity from Jihad, like from Colleen gave him new renewed publicity. So like the news of her arrest went everywhere. But then people were like, oh, uh, who was she trying to kill? And then people like are like, he did what? And then all of a sudden, he, like it's a second um, like indignation and anger and outrage of what he did. And then he's obviously gotten more focus, more publicity. And then very soon after she's been arrested and all that, he goes and does the uh, another infamous video, and then this causes another search, and then you have like things. So it was kind of feeding into all of these kind of um, different. So like basically, if the police had have arrested Codeine, now they can't do this or whatever. But if she'd have been brought in to the FBI headquarters and just said, "You look really misguided. This is stupid. Go home," and she would have walked out, she would have got no media coverage. She might have viewed it as a failure. Then there might, wouldn't have been any exposure, and pe people might have had the same interest in Vilks the same level of interest in Vilks, you, he may not have done the... You know, so it's, it's, it's like it kind of... Like all of this stuff kind of perpetuates and kind of feeds off each other. And it was just kind of... For us, it was important just to kind of show all the kind of dominoes and how um, everything had an effect and consequence on each other. So even things that we may have thought was kind of harmless, um, like part of the idea of terrorism is publicity. And like we felt like the media and oxygen and everything concerning these events actually fed on other stuff even as harmless and as it may seem and how 
inept. So there was always this kind of like cycle that was operating beneath the surface. And I think like when you were asking there about the characters and we, we brought up Felix and Mike Tennyson, we, like that was the thing that like, you have to give his kind of perspective, but then we have to give Jamie and then we have to give the FBI. And you just have to, lo, lo, like for a story like this, you just have to kind of arrange everybody. So you get an idea of how everything kind of rolls into each other. And one of the, like as a documentary maker, having all those cards in play and mm-hmm. deciding which ones to put up on screen, were there any instances that you would have, like that, you know, given more access, given more time, you would have gone down with there any other avenues or were there more things you would have liked to include if you, if you could have? Uh, I don't, I don't think so. You know, like I think like the thing about it is, is that, like I think it, like it just, like we were on it for a number of years. It was like a just massive like road. Like the, the point about it is with the story. Like, it, like Colleen's past for me was yeah. just. Oh, but they're almost like chapters. It's almost yeah, like yeah. these are different chapters that are yeah, coming yeah. through. But you could nearly just have done a documentary on her, on yeah, her yeah. life growing up, on where she was. You could nearly have a whole feature film in yeah, yeah. in her past because it's so tragic and yeah, yeah. sisters dynamic. But I just thought that was very interesting, and I was curious to. There's so much in each of the elements. Yeah, yeah, there is. Like I think just like lo- like even when you're looking at like from our point, like I say, Dimash. He was captured in Spain after his escape and extradition here. Nobody knows why he went to Spain. That is barely even mentioned in our film. It's like there's so much stuff that had to be kind of shoehorned in. And then there were so much kind of decisions we had to make about like what we wanted to kind of focus our attention on. But like, I think like when you're mentioning Cody's childhood, like that was something that we really wanted to kind of put in there because I think it, it's not, I don't think it like, I think what it does is just, it doesn't explain why somebody becomes, um, somebody becomes a terrorist, but it explains why Cody's Cody's. Um, and I think um, I think it just kind of gives an insight into her background, which I think like it was it was kind of extremely bleak and brutal, and was kind of subsequently you know like it's backed up by everybody within her family and social care workers and all of that. You really get a sense of it makes sense why someone would want to protect people that they think are being put down. Yeah, and yeah. Like it, it does. It kind of it helps rationalize and it helps us get on side with her early yeah, on yeah. because again, it's not necessarily the most likable premise, mm. but it's. I don't know. I just, I just found when you kind of went into the background of these two women, you were just heartbroken for yeah, them yeah. In, in a lot of ways. I think for us, and making the film. I think one of the things was like, like let's say the level of coverage and the way they were presented initially and the way they were presented, especially Colleen, was that this was a kind of a new step in terrorism that, you know, uh, Islamic terrorists were targeting American women, converting them and going to get them to kill Americans. And it was like the new face in the war of terror and there was not. And Colleen's, you know, like you had those kind of giant images of her rotating on a and screen. And it's quite a, like a scary image. That's the one that's used in yeah. the, the, the poster of the film where it's quite a severe image of yeah. her when she's in, she's very charismatic and she's yeah. a lot softer when you interview her. Yeah, yeah, no, she is. And I think, like, I think the, the thing is that like when you're asking about their backgrounds and stuff like that, I think the film... Was like that was what was presented, and I think we're just kind of demystifying the arrests and the people, and just kind of presenting their true, real personalities and where they're coming from. I think the one thing that we felt about it is that around those arrests and around the coverage, that it was very alarmist and very sensational. And when you start meeting them, like I think the point about it is, I think once you see Colleen sitting into a car and she's got her teddy bears with her and all that, I think I don't know if people would be scared of her, and like that's kind of really what. Like is it like one of the the questions about it because I think we just got to ask why we're trying to scare each other and especially about something 
that uh, is so central. You know, like there's the America currently has a Muslim ban. Um, and it's banning people flying from certain countries. So, like, if you're kind of scaring people about a threat that doesn't really exist from people concerning, like, these had no contact with religion, had no, never went to a mosque, had never met anybody. Like, it's just, you just have to be so careful because it's causing huge divisions, uh, creating massive tension, and you're wondering, like, is it credible at times, you know? And I think it's just using a simple case to examine behind those headlines. And it's those the two op- opposing sides posturing and kind of ramping things up. Mm. Um, how has the film been received so mm. when it's been screened? What do you find the audience reactions are? Um, I have only like I haven't only I've only seen one screening so far. Uh, I think like I think there's been a couple of like for us. I think we. I think what's really struck me at the moment is I think some people like we've got some reviews in and generally people have kind of got the idea that about the film because I think like we were worried that it's so understated and we're not trying to sensationalize that people might have wondered what these guys were attempting to achieve with it but I think I think we've been kind of surprised happy the fact that people kind of recognize that we were trying to tell the story about like let's say the internet and we're trying to tell the story about their background and to talking about the vulnerability and radicalization and using this as a case point so generally i think people have um understood about what we were trying to do with it so i did also want to ask you a little bit about um just the process of making the film the Mm. the funding process mm-hmm. um, just a little bit about that where the, the funding came from and sure. then a little bit about gaining access to the women over in America yeah, like, yeah. was it difficult to get permits to travel over there especially considering the the topic yeah yeah I think um, concerning the funding um, Morgan Bush uh, was the producer in Fastnet Films and he was the producer on Bergman as well and um, we had gone to RTE we had like great funding, great uh, support from Screen Ireland. Screen Ireland initially gave us the development loan to do the first shoot. Then we were able to take that back. RTE had kind of agreed alongside Screen Ireland. And I think we got BAI in Ireland. Because of Lars Vilk's angle and because there's a kind of an interest in Sweden, we were able to get then SVT, which is the TV channel there, and SFI, who are the kind of film institute. So I think Fastnet are great for co-productions. They yeah. have excellent co-production yeah. background, yeah. Exactly, yeah. And then I think um, we got money as well from the Dutch Film Fund. So so there was this kind of, um, like, there was a number of people that came forward first. So, like, um, like it, it sounds like an awful lot, but I think when... Like, it was a really good budget, but also, like, from a filmmaking kind of point of view, like, it, there was so much pressures on us because we had to go to Sweden to film twice. We had to go to America, um, like, a number of different locations because they'd be, like, different locations of people, you know, from the FBI to... So there was kind of huge pressures, and then you're in Ireland as well. So it, it was just a very difficult case. Um, and then even small stuff, like, you know, like, you know, we were meant to film Colleen's release and then it gets put back by two months because she threw a book at somebody in prison and then, you know, and stuff like that. So there was kind of, so I think that we did incredibly well out of the budget that was there, but we were very lucky to have everybody that we had on board because, uh, you know, they were all very, very supportive. Because I thought about that, the crew, getting the crew over to the US and then again, not knowing how people 
would, when they're just hearing about the topic, they're like, mm. why are you covering this? <laughs> yeah. Do you know? And like, there obviously there is the kind of Waterford link. And yeah. Um, so the, I can't remember the, the chap's name, the, the chap that was living in Waterford. Uh, Ali Shraftamash. Yeah. yeah. Did you, I, I thought he was a very interesting character as well. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, he was. Couldn't get access, he was locked up. Mm. But um, was there any more about, just sort of personal interest? Yeah. Like, what sort of is becoming of him now? And was there more about his background? Because as far as I know, the last I heard was I think he was he went he was brought over to America and he was either going to face life or he pleaded guilty. So I think he pleaded guilty. So I think he's got ten or fifteen years and he's in a supermax in Colorado. Just out of curiosity, this is the thing I got when I watched it. So he is in Waterford. He's been working in Cork. Yeah. He's unemployed now, working in Waterford. This is where we meet him and his yeah. kind of characters come into it. Then he has two women stay with him yeah. from the US. Why was he extradited to the US? Yeah. Um, what did like? What was the connection there to, with the crime committed? Yeah, like with like like to, the plot to kill a Swedish cartoonist. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I think like it's kind of like it's a good question, but I think like legally, like I think you know like they pick up people who might be doing stuff in you know different countries and whatnot and terrorism charges. So I think like Damash definitely falls under that, but it is kind of like. Where is the jurisdiction? Because like it wasn't like even a crime against, uh, uh, it wasn't even a crime against an American citizen. The they, two women kind of went over voluntarily. Yeah, yeah they yeah. wouldn't have a relationship with him. I, I, I think I think the idea like I, I I'm only second guessing here now. Um, he seemed to be targeting American women, and he seemed to be trying to encourage them to come to Waterford to join his camp. So but like I it wasn't just, really a camp in yeah, the end. I, like, I don't want to give too much of a spoiler alert away, yeah. but one of the interesting things about this is the way that you've demystified all these characters. Mm. But yet, it's, there's a slapdashedness to all of this that, you know, and, and you really go into this, that it's not exactly the kind of top-level masterminds that yeah. were coming up with this. Like, I, like it's kind of funny, because like, like I remember trying to talk to law enforcement and stuff like that about this case, and... I think like they would get really annoyed with me because I would be talking about like how farcically bad, you know, like I say something like Dimash was because like one of the messages he gets is like, you know, keep this, you know, from his uh, handler Eagle Eye or whatever is like, you know, don't, don't bring attention to yourself. Don't, whatever you're doing, bring attention. And he's like wandering around with two American women uh, in full um, uh, robes, wandering around Waterford. Like, and also one of them is Colleen, who's like very vocal and loud. So it's like, he's bringing so much attention to himself. Um, constantly so like it was kind of and also like they kind of like dropped Colleen off to the airport like you're thinking like and then you never, was like it was written by Chris Morris or yeah, yeah, yeah. it was just so over the top yeah so far but I think like I think the thing about it is like even with somebody like Dimash like I think I think at one stage he had been in um, I think he wrote like stuff like about oh he wanted to bomb Irish people and he had like he kind of explicitly had kind of named Irish people and whatnot. So there was always kind of a, an underlying menace there, to, but also like with his kind of thing. Because like we don't want to be kind of like saying, I don't want to be, like we were very careful to not to either like make people like, one of the things was when we were pitching at the start, like it wasn't a miscarriage of justice case. Like they did write that they were going to do this and they were calling themselves terrorists. And like this, it's a threat, a threat is as good as yeah. in a lot of ways. I mean, there's there's intent, that's fair enough. Whether they would have had the capacity or the resources in any sense of the word to be able to do it yeah. is another question altogether. Yeah. But just, 
I don't know, like, the, like there was so much about the mechanics of the legal aspect of yeah. this film, which is just fascinating. Like, it's a fascinating watch for anybody because it's it's just not what you expect yeah. when you hear the title. Yeah. This sensationalized character. Yeah, like, I think well, it's concerning Dimash. Yeah, like, I think... It, like I think it's all of these characters that there is a contradiction because you just never know it's, you're almost science fiction about whether somebody's going to do something or not and we just have to try and be as balanced as possible and I think with somebody you can say that they weren't very good at something but also like Jamie and Christian said that he wasn't very nice Colleen said that he wasn't very nice to the kid so you, you have to then listen to what people are telling you about what was happening and you have to be kind of honest about that as well. And then you're kind of aware of like some of the writings that he may have said or whatnot, which I think they were doing a lot of writings. But like if something had happened, um, I don't think people would have been turning around going like it, it's it, like it is. Oh, very... Definitely. Like it sounds I'm delighted that he's in prison. I think mm. he definitely should be. Yeah. And I would not even have question that fact at all because again all this stuff is just a bottom line and yeah. isn't, they didn't even hide who was posting it yeah. but it was just the case of why did he go to America why did America take him yeah 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 I think that's their kind of um, their terrorist legislation and yeah <laughs> just and rock it anywhere and do what you want yeah just... yeah well I think like, like it was a massive operation in Waterford like, it, like one of the things like the there was an Italian restaurant beneath um, where they were living and um, they had it on CCTV and it was like 40 or 50 people coming in through the door and arresting people but unfortunately they wiped their tapes so we didn't have a, a like a copy of that because it, but it was like a kind of it was a huge event and it was very coordinated between the American and the Irish police forces but yeah like I, I think um yeah, like I think it's just like I think all the characters are such a like like that was the, the I say if we were asking ourselves like in the edit and how we put it together like that's kind of the hardest thing because you're trying to find a balance in who they were and all of the inherent contradictions and uh, conflicts that exist between all the different personalities. And you definitely just get this across in the the film where it is just something that just isn't it isn't a cut and dry answer mm-hmm. and I think your exploration of that is very very interesting yeah. um, again was there anything in the process so you had done a podcast about mm-hmm. it was there anything in the process of doing the film maybe like extra bits of information that you learned yeah. or about, about them maybe that you can't use or was there anything that you had to drop maybe for ethical reasons I think that's uh, yeah I think there would be kind of a lot of stuff like I think like we were very sensitive about all aspects concerning the children involved in the case and then it's kind of certain backgrounds like of uh, Colleen and a couple of other things. But like, I, like I think, like yeah, like I think we we wanted to be tell an honest story as possible. But we were extremely acutely aware that they were quite vulnerable and we wanted to be kind of um, very conscientious of that. So I think there would have been stuff that we didn't want to kind of include, and we shouldn't have included, and we didn't include. And then there was other stuff that we felt was quite necessary for people to gain, gain an understanding about. Uh, the story but like you're asking about learning about it from I think like every time we met people and every time we went you would have learned stuff you know like one of the last interviews we did was Mohammed Hassan Khalid and then he just going and gave us a great insight because he was like he was like Jamie didn't have a huge insight into like what was happening in the chat room you know like like she was kind of like a bit uh, vague and her lawyer was there for that interview and um, I think Colleen like had like a very kind of detailed analysis or kind of story but some of it you're kind of trying to figure out well he kind of gave a very clear kind of analysis about what was happening on and also had a very kind of coherent kind of um 
take on his kind of radicalization and how it occurred and was kind of very, you know, after the event kind of analytical on it. So, but I think everybody gave you a different insight, like let's say, like even including a load of people who were, didn't even make the final uh, film. And it is like, the, the point about it is like they're all, like there will be stuff I say that'll come out after this that I'll still learn. Like I think like to turn around and feel like that it's kind of, um, like that it's, like you kind of know, we now know everything about this and we know, like, like Ali Sharaf Damash went to Spain. I don't really know, like did, was it a sting by the American authorities? Was he connecting with somebody that he shouldn't have been connecting for? I have no idea. Like, you know, and I think there's um, a lot of questions and issues concerning this that, you know, only the kind of participants involved themselves or the American authorities or whoever may or may or not know. But I think you just try and get a kind of a closer kind of idea. The more you meet, the more you talk. Um, but yeah, like we were, like I think that was the thing, like we, like I think especially like the final year, really pushed ourselves to be able to kind of um, make calls on how we kind of positioned the story, how we positioned where Colleen was at, where Jamie was at, and like especially Ali Sharaf Damash was at, the threats, the capabilities and the balance, you know, um, between, like, because at times, like, there are quite funny things, but you can't make the film too funny. The film's quite sad, but then you want to kind of, like, get their personalities across. And so it's just that whole thing of applying uh, that balance through all facets of the film. And how long did the editing process take? Was there different versions of the film? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, I think... I think myself and John Murphy, uh, John Murphy was the editor for it, and I'd worked with John previously a couple of times before, and John's great. And I think one of the things we did was we went off and we filmed, I think it was in 2017, and we came back and we made a version of the film. And we just, like it was great to see it up there. And then I think we did it, we finished around in December, and we did it with 16 weeks or something like that, but it was bad. Like in the sense that like there was stuff missing in it, and we weren't sure, and... Like, there wasn't a lot of coverage for certain areas and, you know, but I think it was just such a complex story. Like, when we were on the road, we, were, we weren't just going out and, like, we, like when, to answer your previous question, we weren't going out on the road and going, oh, we know this story. Like, we were rocking up the first time and we didn't just meet her sister. And we couldn't, you know, like, she's not the person that you were going to be, like, having a briefing conversation with for two or three days or whatever. And then you would be just arriving into the town where she lived and you might get an interview with somebody. But it was very much on our feet and quick and moving and all of that kind of stuff. So we came back with a lot of stuff and we edited it out but from that edit we had a kind of a, a very rough cut and it was very very rough but we were able to then I think I took maybe two months away from the project three months and then I just watched it again in a March and it was like whoa uh, and you just have that kind of clean perspective where you've it's not wood from the trees you've walked away you've got your completely different perspective and you come back and it was very clear and obvious then what we needed to do and what we had to uh, what parts of the story we kind of had to follow up on and all of that kind of stuff. Because the thing about it, a film like this, there's so much information. There's so much kind of everything coming in from so many different factors. So you have to kind of um, make calls on what you want to kind of highlight and whatnot. And then I think we shot again that summer, just a little bit, like I think it was maybe two weeks. Um, but that was when Colleen got out of prison and stuff like that. And then I think I would have edited with John Murphy down for another... 10 weeks but that was very intensive like that would have been like that was like you know how much we had left in the budget and uh, John was going off to do another project it was like okay um, doing kind of late hours and you know wandering out of the edit at 10 o'clock at night and then just come back the next morning and just doing it and like it was kind of we really started kind of getting it into shape and then I think we had 
something in place by about the October and then it was ready for post and all of that. But it was, uh, yeah, it was kind of like, like I think me and John kind of talked about it because it's a kind of story edit-wise that just doesn't have a central character, like which would make it really more straightforward or it doesn't have a sim- similar event and it's all of these different things. We kind of felt like, oh, like, if, like this is probably going to be the hardest thing we'll ever edit because it's just so complex and such a pain and it's so difficult and it's trying to distill so much information into so it was definitely um, it was brilliant to do it with somebody as like great as John because I think the two of us work very very well but it was like it was like it was a it was a difficult edit to get your head around and to be able to kind of then put down uh, on a timeline but I, I like I think we I think John did a fantastic job yeah definitely like there's again there's so much in there and you do get a sense of this but a fantastic film so when does it hit cinemas um, Friday February the 14th Valentine's Day <laughs> I think <it> was. <laughs> how romantic uh, and yeah. are you doing any special Q&A's I think we're doing one a preview screening on the Thursday at 6.15 um, in the IFI brilliant okay yeah. so definitely it's well worth the watch even if you if you think you know everything about the case there's there's so many fabulous interesting insights and it just turns your head on on just that concept of of these frightening evil creatures that exist out there that we don't know about like yeah. everyone is a human and yeah. they all have their errors and i think that's something that's captured really well so brilliant thank you so much for chatting with us thank you very much <laughs>